explain. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be with you again. Um, as always, it's a great privilege for me to be able to, to speak to you, um, to share my heart with you. And um, like I did last time, I want to start off this morning, and I think I might do this for quite some time, so bear with me. But I want to start off just by thanking Southside, um, just, for your, just for your contribution, for your support, for your welcome since we've come here. Uh, we've just felt so, so welcome by all of you, uh, my family and myself. So a warm, just word of gratitude from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, we continue to thank you as you continue to bless us. So thank you very much for that. We really appreciate that. And even in the midst of this, this chaos that we're living through, um, not only in the Middle East or with the gang stuff going on uh, locally, but also just with COVID, you know, um, we've, we felt so welcome, even with all these restrictions and everything that's going on, everyone's gone just above and beyond to make us feel welcome. Now, this COVID has obviously spread across the world and it's, it's caused quite a bit of chaos. Um, and, I mean, you will know, we are feeling the grunt of it. And so in Canada, this, 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 the stats this week is uh, 1.3 million cases across Canada, up, up to date, more or less, um, and almost 25,000 deaths. Whereas worldwide, we're looking at 160 million cases. That's a lot of people, 160 million uh, cases of COVID and 3.3 million deaths. And so our hearts and our thoughts go out to those who have suffered and those who are suffering and those who have suffered loss. And, um, but also our hearts and our thoughts go out to the, to the frontline workers, to those doctors, those medical staff, the nurses, the physios, all of those people who go out and work in these places where, to be quite honest, many of us dread to, to, to walk into. Yet they go there and they're serving these people. And so our hearts are filled with gratitude towards those, those doctors, those physicians, um, physios, nurses, and all those involved. But you know, if there's one doctor in history that I'm particularly grateful for, it is one that Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 describes as the beloved physician. And it refers to Luke, the writer of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We see in Acts chapter 16, the first time we come across Luke is Luke joined Paul and Silas and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey and um, as the team doctor. But he would just grow in that role and he would become much more than the team doctor. He would accompany Paul on all of these journeys, these missionary journeys, just across Palestine and, and um, Asia Minor, just all across the world over quite a few number of years. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the last letter Paul ever wrote. And uh, he was about to be executed in Rome. And he writes this about Luke. He says, he has no one but Luke with him. So this guy, Luke, sticks with Paul even right till the end of Paul's life. This physician, the beloved physician. And God finally moves on his heart to write down and record everything that he has seen, everything that he has heard. Can you imagine it? This guy, Luke, what he must have seen, what he must have heard about Jesus, about the resurrection, the transfiguration, you name it. And then about the early church. Now the early church, you know, rose up out of nothing, basically, and changed the world. Turned the world upside down in a very, very good way. You think about that. And so, Paul, and so Luke comes, he pens it all down in the book of, uh, book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which, which makes up more, more of the New Testament than even the writings of Paul. And so I'm grateful towards Luke. And this morning, we're going to something that he wrote. 
with quite a few questions. If there ever was an expert on church, on ecclesiology, on what it means to be the church, what it means to be followers of Christ, witnesses for Jesus, uh, what it means to be sent, you know, sent disciples, just as the Father sent the Son in John chapter 20, the Son sends us, what it means and what that looks like, Luke is our guy. He can tell us all about that. So I'm going to invite you to come to Acts chapter 1. It's being sung so beautifully. I promise I'm not going to try and sing it. I know my limit limitations. But I'm going to read for us from Acts chapter 1, from verse 1 to 3. And it says the following. It says, in my former book, Theopolis, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, there's one word in verse one that is so critical to understand, not only chapter one of the book of Acts, but the whole of the book of Acts. And as a matter of fact, I would go further and I would say this one word helps us understand the whole of the rest of the New Testament. And this one word in verse one is the word began, began. He writes to, he writes to his friend Theophilus and he says to him, this, everything that I've written up until this stage, of course, he's referring to the gospel of Luke. He says, all of that is what Jesus began to teach and what Jesus began to do. Now, the Gospel of Luke, I mean, that includes quite a bit, doesn't it? It includes the, vir the, the virgin birth. It includes the, the career of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, even includes his ascension. So all of that, Luke is saying, everything that has happened up until that point, that is what he began to do and to teach. Now, let me add a caveat. We're not trying, we're not taking anything away from the finality of the saving work, the redemptive work of Christ on the cross or in the resurrection. In other words, when Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says that Jesus was offered once and for all for our sins and seated at the right hand of the Father. We believe it. It is true. It is correct. There's a finality to the work of Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. And so when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it is finished, Sins had been covered, forgiveness had been obtained, wrath had been appeased, and the enemy, evil, Satan himself, had been dealt a mortal blow. And so we are not taking away, Luke is not taking away from the finality of what Jesus had done. But yet, in another sense, he is saying that all of that is, is somehow the beginning of Jesus' work. In other words, the truth that he spoke those words that were truthful, that were pointed, that were compassionate and merciful, those words were the beginning of his teaching ministry. His deeds, his hands, his, his, his um, reaching out and healing people, touching people, his holy anger, all of those things are but the beginning of his works. This is absolutely critical. If you want to understand our role in the church today, if we, if we want to understand the book of Acts, we have to understand that all of that is the beginning of the work of Christ. And so it's correct for us to say in one sense that Jesus' words on the cross, there's a finality to it. It is finished. But in another sense, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is saying it is not finished. Phase two has started. 
He has, he has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his coming, but now he has implemented the kingdom of God through his church. Matthew chapter 16, he said this, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is what Luke is talking about. Everything he had done up until a certain point, that was the beginning, but now he is continuing on. Jesus is still teaching and he is still doing but he's doing it in a different mode. He's doing it now through the church by the spirit. Do you get that? It's really important if we want us to understand the book and also the New Testament. You know, if I think about Luke, I mean, what a guy. I mean, there'd be a few people across history I would want to have in my living room and spend some time with. And I think Luke would be one of them. You know, seeing that he wrote more words than any other New Testament writer, I would want to spend time with him. And particularly because of the fact that he, he saw the early church. He saw how it began. He was a post-resurrection Christian follower, believer that came along later. So he saw what they went through. He, he saw how they went from pretty weak followers of Christ to really, really powerful men and women who turned the world upside down. And so you picture that you've got Luke for a Sunday afternoon lunch today. Like, what would you ask him? You know, where would you start? What would be those burning questions you would want to ask of Luke? And for me, the one probably critical question would be, how is it that the early church was so effective in the witnessing for Christ? How is it that they were so effective in terms of being instruments used by Jesus? For Jesus to continue to do and for Jesus to continue to teach in their world. Like, what did they go through? How did that happen? That would be my question. You see, I read the gospel. Let's say the gospel of Luke. And then I move on to the book of Acts. And I can see just a perfect similarity. Like, I can see the, the same thing is at work. There's an imitation of Jesus through the lives of the disciples. And I want to know what they went through. How did that happen? Because they weren't always that way. And you know what he would do? Luke would point us back to chapter one because he gives us four reasons. And we're going to look at that this morning. Four reasons how these early church disciples, these followers of Jesus, became effective instruments for Jesus in their day. And then we're going to apply it to ourselves. Now, if you go back to verse two, we see that what they had, firstly, is they had a commissioning or a command through the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 2, he says this. He says, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he had given some sort of commandment through the Spirit. We've seen in, in John, John puts it this way. He, said, Jesus, he, he captures Jesus speaking like this. He says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, right? It's like this great commission, this command, the the, the, the um authorization by Jesus to go into the world and to extend his ministry, to extend his teaching and his doing. That's the way John captures it. You look at Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. We dealt with that last week where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the way Matthew captured this command, this commissioning. And this is the way Luke puts it. He says, it is a commandment through the spirit, a commandment through the spirit. What these guys had, was a spirit authenticating commandment or commissioning by Jesus to extend his ministry. They had a conviction that they were called by Jesus 
to do what Jesus had been doing all along, to be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. Jesus would extend his ministry. He would continue to do and to teach, as recorded right through the book of Acts, through these guys, the disciples. But they had to hear it from him. They had to hear and they had to believe and they had to come to, to a place of conviction that Jesus had called them. They were part of the team. The king had summoned them. And that's what they had. A second thing that I see that they had that Luke would show to us that made them effective witnesses for Jesus, instruments in his hands, verse 3, is there was a verification that Jesus was alive and triumphant. There was a verification that Jesus was alive and triumphant. In verse 3, it says this, To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. You see, you cannot be an authentic instrument in the hands of Jesus if you don't believe that he's alive. A dead Christ is no Christ. Those two words cannot go together. It was, it was unimaginable in, in, in uh, Jewish eschatology. You couldn't put the two together. That The Christ, the Messiah, he was the victorious one, not the dead one. So if someone wanted to go and be an instrument for Jesus, firstly, they had to believe that he was alive. And because he was alive, that gave them the assurance that his cause was unstoppable because he was alive. So this guy had a type of assurance that Jesus, he wasn't dead. He was alive and not only alive, he was triumphant. He had won the ultimate victory on the cross, which is confirmed through the resurrection. Therefore, they had the assurance of him being alive, but also of his cause succeeding. And that gave them great hope. We move on. There's a third thing we pick up in the latter part of verse 3. It says that they needed further instruction about the kingdom of God. So, had, so they had this conviction about a calling. They had this, uh, you know, um, assurance that Jesus was alive and that his cause would succeed. But also they needed more instruction. You know, sometimes they were quite hard to learn if you read the gospel. Um, that, you know, that learning came quite hard to them like with many of us. And so they had to learn, they had to get a, like a crash course in post-resurrection kingdom theology. And so we find a little bit of this at the, at the latter part of, of Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, an account that we already looked at. But Jesus had to come and show them over these 40 days how to take the Old Testament, the prophecies, the law, just everything about it, and how he fits into that, how he is the fulfillment of that. They had to get a crash course in post-resurrection kingdom theology. You see, if they were to be the extension of Jesus' teaching ministry, then they better be teaching the same message. And that's what they had. Now, let's stop there for a moment, friends, before we go on to number four. These were things that the apostles said. These are the things that Luke would, he would sit at my table, and, and these are the things that he would point out to me. Now, of course, the apostles were unique in many ways. They saw the resurrected Jesus in, the, in flesh, which we didn't. They had the authority to write scripture, which we don't. Yet, we need the same things. We need the same things if we are also to be effective instruments for Jesus today. You see, his mission is continuing. It never stopped with them. His mission is continuing. He's still building his church. 
He's still wanting to teach. He's still wanting to do. And he still wants effective instruments through whom to do it. And so these things extend to us this morning. And I want to submit to you that we need the same. You and I also need a deep conviction that we have been commanded. We have been summoned by Jesus himself to join him in his mission. We need the assurance that Jesus is alive. That's where we are constantly putting your attention towards where is God at work in your life. We want to point it out in your life, in your neighbor's life. We need to experience and know the risen Jesus. We need that assurance, which will bring an assurance that his cause will succeed. And thirdly, you and I, and that's what this morning is about. That's what Wednesday, morning, um, Wednesday evenings is about in, in many ways. And a lot of the other gatherings that we have, a portion of it is to equip us, to instruct us about the kingdom of God. If we are going to be the extension of Jesus' teaching ministry, then we better, be, we better be sharing the same gospel. These are the things Luke would point out. But there's a fourth. You know, even if Luke stopped here, I would get up from the table I'd give him some of these sorbet ice cream that Janice gave me, which is delicious, by the way. And I would think end of conversation, but I'm convinced that Luke would stop and say, hang on, hang on. There's a fourth thing, a fourth thing that is critically important, that explains the reason why these people, these men and women were so effective witnesses, such effective instruments for the extension of Jesus's ministry. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to our text. We're going to go read from verse 4 to verse 8 now. Acts chapter 1 verse 4 to 8 says this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the dates or the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The fourth thing that these men and women had was a baptism with the Holy Spirit. This was one of the main things that made them such effective instruments in the hands of Jesus. You see, three years before this, John the Baptist had led a kind of a renewal movement in Israel. We preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And where people were baptized in the river as a sign of their new relationship with God. But then he made this comment, he made this statement, he said, when the Messiah comes, he will not baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that is what Jesus is saying in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. He, he was telling his disciples, this is about to happen. Within a few days, you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John immersed you in water. You will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. John drenched you in water. You will be drenched in the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing they needed was a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, this morning is almost like a, a laying a foundation for next week. I saw a question come up about filling and baptism. 
We'll touch on that a little bit this morning, but next week has been assigned to just full on dive into this topic. But I want to see, I want to see it this morning as one of the four. Um, and then we'll delve into, into more detail and depth next week. But let me just take a little bit of time on this point this morning. So what is it? What is the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus was talking about that Luke was referring to here? I want to give you a working definition, and then I'll, then I'll try and, and explain why I get to the definition, and then we're going to close off this morning. And that is this. The essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who is already a Christian, who is already a believer, receives extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. Now, you might want to write that down. The essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who's already a believer, who's already a Christian, receives extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. There's this thought, there's this link between this baptism, this coming of the Spirit, and spiritual power to be the instruments Jesus wants us to be. Now, there's many reasons for this or many proofs of this that, that we can get from the Scripture. I'll give you three this morning. Jesus referred to this baptism, this coming of the Spirit, as being clothed with power. Being clothed with power. Again, Luke chapter 24, he says a similar thing to Acts chapter 1. He tells his disciple to wait in the city for the gift that the Father had promised. Because when the gift comes, he will clothe them with power from on high. You see this idea of when the Spirit comes, there will be this power, the spiritual power. From on high. There's a second reason for this. Or a second point we can make this morning is, is very often this coming of the Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit, is described as power for witness. It's our text this morning. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You see the link? Power, spiritual power coming, but not just so we can have some emotional high or some you know, just spiritual experience. Sure, there might be some of that. But ultimately, the reason, the primary reason is he comes and he empowers us to be the instruments, to be the extension of his doing and his teaching in the world today. Thirdly, it's often described as the filling with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus speaks. He says, you will be baptized with the Spirit in a few days' time. In Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, it actually happens. The Spirit comes upon the people. And then it's described as being, as all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, when you go and read every time the Bible and the book of Acts speaks about being filled with the Spirit, there's an accompanying power that comes with it. There is, there's a type of, of success, of effectiveness in terms of mission that comes alongside with it. You think about Acts chapter 2. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. Peter preaches, and the Bible says that his words were filled with power, so much so that people were cut to the heart because of his words. Cut to the heart, saying, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? And 3,000 men came to faith. This baptism of the Spirit that Jesus was, is talking about, that Luke is referring to, and that he, he would remind us of, is an empowerment for effective mission. It is for us to be effective instruments, an extension of the doing and the teaching of Jesus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a, a British preacher, um, considered by many influential people to be one of the, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He, made, he gave this kind of illustration um, 
of a Christian, a normal Christian, and then one who has who is, who's been clothed with this power, who has received this baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, who has the, who has the Spirit upon him. And this is a story that he tells. He says, it's like a child walking with her dad. And the child walks with the dad. She holds the father's hand. She is um, secure. She knows she's loved. She's, kind of, you know, she's happy. Everything is, is good. Um, but there's no reason to, to be overly joyed. You know, there's no reason to be overly excited, to, to, to start dancing and singing. Yet she knows she is loved. And yet she walks with her father. He says, but then the father comes and picks up the little girl, embraces the little girl, starts kissing and hugging the little girl and tells the little girl that he loves her. He then keeps her, holds her at arm's length, looks her in the eye and says, I am so glad that you are mine. He brings her back in, gives her another hug, and then he puts her down. He takes her hand and they walk further. Sure, previously she knew she was loved. Previously she had a measure of joy. Previously she was secure. But now, all of that has gone to a next level. She is, she is just filled with so much joy. She knows beyond a shadow of doubt the love of the Father. She is so filled with joy that she is overflowing. She wants to sing and she wants to dance and she wants to proclaim because of what she has experienced in her Father. In the same way, all of us as Christians, and we'll touch on this next week, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Him. Otherwise, we don't belong to God. But yet there's this, there's this empowering, this, this, this touch that he gives his people that makes them effective instruments. And that is the picture that he paints. And so let me summarize this morning and say this, that Jesus is not done. He's not done in the world. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, there's finality to what he did on the cross and his resurrection and through his career. But phase two has started. And in phase two, Jesus continues to speak. He continues to teach and do, but he does it now through his church, by his spirit. And if we are to ask this morning, the writer of, of, of Acts, Luke, what do we do? What do we need to do to be effective instruments for Christ today? He would say the following. We need to have a conviction that we have been called by Jesus to extend his ministry. You personally, I cannot give you the conviction. You need to sit before the Lord and get the conviction, read the Bible, get the conviction that you've been called for this task. Secondly, you need assurance that he is alive. You need to experience him for yourself. Thirdly, you need more instruction about the kingdom of God. And that's why we come together. We meet together. One of the reasons. And fourthly, we need to pray and say, God, please fill us with your spirit. We want to be effective witnesses for you in Canada, in this area, Vancouver area. We want to be effective, but we cannot do it in our own strength. And this, again, is not something I can do for you. This is something that comes from God. And so let's pray. Father, this morning we are just so thrilled, Lord, that we get to partner with you, that we get to join you on your mission. And Jesus, we are just also so thrilled that you are not done, but you continue to touch this world, Lord. And I would just pray this morning for all of us. We want to be effective in that. We want to be effective instruments in your hand for you to be able to continue to do and teach that which you started when you came. And so my prayer for all of us this morning is may we take this to heart. May we ponder these scriptures and these points um, through the week. And ultimately, Lord, may we be effective for your cause and for your purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen.